Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our August 2016 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Treatment of depression is often a trial and error process that may require multiple treatment attempts before finding one that is effective for a given patient. This process could be improved if clinicians had information about which treatment works best for which patients. Previous research has shown that exercise is an effective treatment for depression, but that not all patients get better following exercise. We also know that positive changes in mood can be observed immediately after a single session of exercise. In this study, sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors examined whether a patient's mood or affect following a single exercise session is related to his or her ultimate treatment outcome. Over 100 subjects were randomized to one of two exercise groups. The first group engaged in approximately 150 minutes of exercise per week for 12 weeks. The other group engaged in approximately 45 minutes of exercise per week. After the first session of exercise, subjects completed a measure of their affect. The authors found that in patients who received 150 minutes of exercise per week, the more positive their affect following that session, the more likely they would respond to exercise treatment. The authors conclude that measuring a patient's affect is clinically useful for predicting treatment response to exercise in depression and for matching the right patient with the right treatment. In 2013, binge eating disorder was formally recognized as a distinct eating disorder in DSM-5. DSM-5 frequency and duration criteria state that binge eating must occur at least once a week for at least three months. These are less stringent criteria than the provisional DSM-4-TR criteria of at least two days per week for at least six months. To shed light on this difference, a large-scale survey of a representative U.S. adult population was designed to estimate and compare binge eating disorder prevalence based on DSM-5 and DSM-4-TR criteria. An analysis of the data conducted by Kantar Health with funding from Shire indicated that 12-month and lifetime prevalence estimates for binge eating disorder respectively were 1.64% and 2.03% using DSM-5 criteria and 1.15% and 1.52% using DSM-4-TR criteria. Only 3.2% of survey respondents who were categorized as meeting DSM-5 binge eating disorder criteria reported ever having received a formal binge eating disorder diagnosis from a healthcare provider. In addition, higher rates of psychiatric comorbidities, including depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, were reported by survey respondents who met DSM-5 criteria, 
compared to respondents who did not meet these criteria. The authors conclude that estimated binge eating disorder prevalence is higher with DSM-5 criteria than with DSM-4TR criteria. They emphasize the need for improved awareness and recognition of binge eating disorder among patients and healthcare providers. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. As of June 2016 in the United States, medical marijuana has been approved in 25 states for various indications. Some states have authorized the use of marijuana for a number of psychiatric conditions, including post-traumatic stress disorder, Tourette's disorder, and agitation in Alzheimer's disease. Concerns have arisen because this state-by-state -state approval process does not require the same scientific rigor the Food and Drug Administration requires of its drug approval process. These concerns are heightened by the potential negative side effects of marijuana, which are especially significant when its use begins in adolescence. In this month's CME offering, Researchers examine the quality of evidence for the use of marijuana and other cannabinoids for psychiatric indications. Randomized, placebo-controlled trials are considered the gold standard for evidence. In general, the quality of evidence for marijuana use as a treatment for psychiatric conditions is very low. There are no randomized controlled trials in these conditions as yet. Other forms of cannabinoids are approved by regulatory agencies such as the Food and Drug Administration. These include dronabinol, nabilone, and nabiximols. The quality of evidence evaluating these medications for psychiatric disorders, however, is also low. Marijuana potentially leads to adverse effects such as impairment of cognition, dependence and addiction, and an increased risk of psychosis. The authors conclude that when approving medical marijuana use for psychiatric indications, physicians and policymakers should take into account the limited existing evidence and balance that with potential side effects. This study was supported in part by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the National Institute of Mental Health, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Irritability is a significant component in the clinical manifestation of major depressive disorder. The Sheehan Irritability Scale was developed to assess irritability-related symptoms in patients with psychiatric disorders. The scale complements existing measures of depression symptom severity and extends assessment to irritability symptoms. However, it has not previously undergone extensive psychometric evaluation in major depressive disorder populations. In this study, sponsored by AstraZeneca, the psychometric properties of the Sheehan Irritability Scale were examined in patients with major depressive disorder. The evaluation of the psychometric properties of the scale was completed with data from a Phase two clinical trial in major depressive disorder patients who had an inadequate response to citalopram. 
the Sheehan Irritability Scale, was demonstrated to be reliable and valid in this clinical trial sample of patients. What's most important for clinical trials comparing different antidepressant treatments is that the Sheehan Irritability Scale total scores demonstrated good responsiveness to changes in depression severity and it discriminated between responders and non-responders. The authors conclude that the Sheehan Irritability Scale has excellent reliability, acceptable validity, and good responsiveness, making it appropriate for use in clinical research and practice. The late 20s used to be considered the most common age at onset of bipolar disorder, but recent data based on epidemiologic and clinical studies indicate that much earlier onsets are highly prevalent. A time trend or cohort effect suggests that younger patients would have an earlier age at onset of their bipolar disorder than older patients. In a study supported by the Stanley Medical Research Institute, the authors examined evidence for a cohort effect in more than 900 outpatients and found two types of evidence for such an effect. First, patients who were younger at network entry did have significantly earlier ages at onset of their bipolar disorder. Second, their parents and grandparents had greater numbers of psychiatric difficulties including depression, bipolar disorder, suicide attempt, alcohol or drug abuse, or other illnesses, than those of patients who were older at network entry. The authors had previously found family burden of illness and psychosocial adversity in childhood to be risk factors for an earlier age at onset of bipolar disorder. The decreasing age at onset and greater family loading for psychiatric illness in younger patients are both consistent with a cohort effect. As the illness and perhaps its familial vulnerability are increasing, the authors recommend that greater efforts be made for earlier identification of bipolar disorder in children so that effective interventions can be studied and utilized in the hopes of ameliorating the more severe course of illness in those with the earliest onsets. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Chinese Americans, like other ethnic minorities, face both practical and cultural barriers to mental health care. The present study, funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, aimed to investigate the effectiveness of providing culturally sensitive collaborative treatment using video conferencing technology to underserved Chinese immigrants with depression. For this study, systematic depression screening was used at primary care clinics. Patients who screened positive for depression and fulfilled the study criteria were invited to participate. All patients were randomly assigned to either the intervention group or the control group. The intervention group received a culturally sensitive interview that used the engagement interview protocol to explore the patient's beliefs about illness to facilitate clinical communication in a culturally appropriate manner. In addition, patients in the intervention group received collaborative management of depression from a multidisciplinary team, including a care manager. 
The control group received a routine psychiatric interview and treatment as usual by their primary care physicians. Patients in both the intervention and the control group were assessed over the phone for a period of six months by research staff who were blinded to their treatment assignments. A total of 190 patients were enrolled, nearly two-thirds of whom were female, and the average patient age was 50 years. The study found that patients who received active intervention had improved depression outcomes and overall improvement of their symptoms. The researchers conclude that telepsychiatry-based, culturally sensitive collaborative treatment is effective in improving treatment outcomes of Chinese immigrants with depression. The current consensus definition of recovery from a major depressive episode, or MDE, is eight consecutive weeks with no more than minimal residual symptoms of the episode. Within this definition are two levels of MDE resolution. Complete, that is, a symptomatic resolution of all symptoms, and minimal residual symptoms of the episode. The authors of this article compared these two different levels of resolution in over 300 patients with MDE. Their work was supported by the National Institute of Health and the University of California. Study results showed that 200 patients with asymptomatic resolution of all symptoms of MDE remained free of a subsequent depressive episode four times longer than the 125 patients who met the recovery definition but retained minimal residual symptoms of the episode. This finding was not attributable to a difference in intensity of antidepressant medication. Asymptomatic MDE resolution was a stronger predictor of time well than any of 18 other predictors suggested in the literature. Asymptomatic recovery was also associated with improved psychosocial function and a better illness course compared to MDE resolution with residual symptoms. The authors conclude that only asymptomatic resolution of all symptoms of MDE will initiate a stable period of recovery. The presence of residual symptoms indicates that the episode is still active, the patient has significant psychosocial impairment, and continued treatment is needed to prevent episode relapse or recurrence. A four-week period free of all symptoms of the episode is recommended as the new definition of MDE recovery. Aging is usually considered to be a process in which physical and cognitive functions decline progressively. Yet researchers have paid surprisingly little attention to changes in mental health with aging, despite the belief that mental health can influence general health and even longevity. In a study funded in part by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers examined trends in physical, cognitive, and mental health over the adult lifespan. Called the Successful Aging Evaluation, the study included over 1,500 adults aged 21 through 100. Random digit dialing was used to select the study participants. Persons with a diagnosis of dementia were excluded. The evaluation consisted of telephone interviews to assess cognitive function and surveys in which people rated their physical and mental health on standardized rating scales. 
As expected, the results suggested a progressive worsening of physical and cognitive functioning with aging. However, surprisingly, there appeared to be a progressive improvement in mental health over the same life period. This improvement included an increase in satisfaction with life, happiness, and general well-being, and a decrease in depression, anxiety, and subjective stress. This finding of apparently continual improvement in mental health from age 21 years to the 90s challenges the usual association of aging with unhappiness. On the contrary, aging seems to be a time of increasing satisfaction and well-being. The authors discuss possible reasons and recommend future studies. Clinical trials examining the efficacy of pharmacologic and psychotherapy interventions for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, often apply exclusion criteria that may affect the generalizability of their results. In this study, the authors applied a set of exclusion criteria representative of these two types of clinical trials to a sample of adults with PTSD who participated in NISARC, a large national survey conducted in the United States. They found that in a typical pharmacologic trial, more than 60% of respondents with PTSD and more than 70% of respondents seeking treatment for PTSD would have been excluded by one or more exclusion criterion. In contrast, only about 20% of participants with PTSD and 30% of participants seeking treatment for PTSD would have been excluded in a typical psychotherapy efficacy trial. Traditional pharmacologic clinical trials for PTSD tend to exclude a majority of individuals with the disorder, particularly those seeking treatment, and preferentially recruit patients without significant comorbidity rather than real-life patients. In contrast, psychotherapy trial results may be applied to most patients with PTSD in routine clinical practice. The authors, therefore, conclude that clinicians and researchers should carefully consider whether the eligibility criteria for a clinical trial truly represent the general population. Kluver-Busey syndrome, or KBS, consists of placid affect, indiscriminate dietary behavior, hypoaurality, hypersexuality, visual agnosia, and hypermetamorphosis. When three or more of these symptoms are present, patients can be diagnosed with partial KBS. This syndrome has traditionally been perceived as rare and limited to cases with destruction of bilateral amygdala. The basolateral amygdala has projections to the prefrontal cortex, hippocampus striatum, and the central nucleus of the amygdala. These structures mediate behavioral control, emotionality, memory consolidation, spatial learning, and approach and avoidance behaviors. Therefore, it is possible that bilateral damage or dysfunction to the amygdala or its neuronal pathways can lead to the development of KBS. More recent publications have provided additional information supporting this hypothesis, as KBS has been observed in the setting of altered amygdala connectivity and periictal hypofunction of temporal lobe structures.
The authors of this article present two cases of partial KBS. One case is in the setting of unilateral amygdala damage, suggesting altered connectivity of contralateral temple lobe structures. The other case involves post-ictal hypofunctioning of temporal lobe structures. The syndrome offers important lessons in the neural connectivity and functional neurophysiology of mesotemporal structures, particularly the hippocampal amygdaloid complex and its projections to the orbitofrontal cortex. Functional or anatomical impairment in these connections may account for many instances of undiagnosed KBS. Since the early 2000s, various synthetic cannabinoids have been developed for recreational use. However, intake of these substances may result in psychotic or affective symptoms, which have become a growing concern in psychiatric hospital settings. Researchers in Israel conducted a study of electronic medical records from a mental health center to compare two groups of hospitalized patients, 60 synthetic cannabinoid users and 163 cannabis users. Synthetic cannabinoid users were younger, had significantly higher psychosis scores, had longer hospitalizations, and were more likely to be admitted to the hospital by court order. The two groups did not differ significantly on any physiologic or laboratory parameter. The authors note that synthetic cannabinoids are generally more potent and have full agonistic activity at the CB1 cannabinoid receptor compared to THC, the major psychoactive molecule in cannabis. Furthermore, Synthetic cannabinoids lack other plant-derived molecules found in cannabis, some of which have putative antipsychotic and anti-anxiety activity. These chemical differences may explain the worse psychoses of synthetic cannabinoid users compared to cannabis users and the possibility of poor prognosis of this population. Cognitive deficits have been identified as a core feature of schizophrenia. Brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF, a neurotropin that regulates neuronal function and development, may be involved in the pathogenesis of schizophrenia. This premise is based on evidence of reduced BDNF signaling in patients with schizophrenia and the role of BDNF in learning and memory. The present study examined whether BDNF gene polymorphisms influence cognition in patients with chronic schizophrenia. Funding support was received from a NARSAD Independent Investigator Grant, the Stanley Medical Research Institute, and Chinese institutions. Four polymorphisms of the BDNF gene were analyzed in 844 patients, meeting DSM-4 criteria for schizophrenia, and 1,043 controls using a case control design. The positive and negative syndrome scale and the repeatable battery for the assessment of neuropsychological status, or R-bands, were assessed. The results showed that significant differences in the genotype and the allele frequencies between patients and controls were observed only for RS-108, 35210, both with p-value of less than 0 
Further, RS-1083510 had a significant effect on language performance only in schizophrenia, while RS-122-73539 played a stronger role in cognitive performance among both patients and healthy controls, especially on attention and the R-band's total score. The authors conclude that these results suggest a role of BDNF gene variants in susceptibility to schizophrenia and in some aspects of cognitive function. Patients with schizophrenia have increased rates of many cardiometabolic risk factors. In this month's clinical and practical psychopharmacology offering, which is the second in a two-part series, Dr. Andrade looks at the impact of non-pharmacological interventions, such as diet and exercise, on measures of physical health in these patients and finds some surprising results. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight two educational activities. What steps should be taken when you are presented with a patient who has been previously treated for depression by a primary care provider, but has been unresponsive to treatment? Explore our first CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Otsuka, and uncover some of the complexities of this challenging diagnosis by following the case of Robert a 55-year-old accountant whose inadequate response to treatment by his primary care doctor has prompted a referral to a specialist. Insomnia is a common yet often unrecognized symptom in patients with depression and anxiety. Because of its association with functional impairment, medical conditions, and disturbances in multiple body systems, insomnia must be addressed in the treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. In our second CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Forest Laboratories, you will meet 42-year-old Mrs. C, whose experience illustrates the common combination of these disorders. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the August issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.